0: Section 29 of A Far Country by Winston Churchill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 3, Chapter 25, Part 1. My entrance into the campaign was accompanied by a blare of publicity, and during that fortnight I never picked up a morning or evening newspaper without reading, on the first page, some such headline as. Crowds flock to hear parrot. As a matter of fact, the crowds did flock, but I never quite knew as I looked down from platforms on seas of faces how much of the flocking was spontaneous. Much of it was so, since the struggle had then become sufficiently dramatic to appeal to the larger public imagination that is but occasionally waked on the other hand the magic of advertising cannot be underestimated nor must the existence be ignored of an organized corps of shepherds under the vigilant direction of mr judd jason whose duty it was to see that none of our meetings was lacking in numbers and enthusiasm there was always a demonstrative gathering overflowing the sidewalk in front of the entrance swaying and cheering in the light of the street lamps and on the floor within an ample scattering of suspiciously bleary-eyed voters to start the stamping and applauding in spite of these known facts the impression of popularity of repudiation of reform by a large majority of level-headed inhabitants had reassuring and reinforcing effects astute citizens spectators of the fray if indeed there were any might have remarked an unique and significant feature of that campaign that the usual recriminations between the two great parties were lacking Mr. Parks, the Republican candidate, did not denounce Mr. McGuire, the Democratic candidate. Republican and Democratic speakers alike expended their breath in lashing Mr. Krebs and the Citizens' Union. It is difficult to record the fluctuations of my spirit. When I was in the halls, speaking or waiting to speak, I reacted to that phenomenon known as mob psychology— I became self-confident, even exhilarated, and in those earlier speeches I managed, I think, to strike the note for which I strove, the judicial note suitable to a lawyer of weight and prominence, of deprecation rather than denunciation, I sought to embody and voice a fine and calm sanity at a time when everyone else seemed in danger of losing their heads, and to a large extent achieved it. I had known Mr. Krebs for more than twenty years, and while I did not care to criticize a fellow member of the bar, I would go so far as to say that he was visionary, that the changes he Proposed in government would if adopted have grave and far-reaching results we could not for instance support in idleness those who refused to do their share of the work of the world mr Krebs was well-meaning i refrained from dwelling too long upon him passing to mr greenhalge also well-meaning but a man of mediocre ability who would make a mess of the government of a city which would one day rival new york and chicago loud cheers and i pointed out that mr perry blackwood had been unable to manage the affairs of the boyne street road such men well intentioned though they might be were hindrances to progress this led me naturally to a discussion of the riverside franchise and the traction consolidation i was one of those whose honesty and good faith had been arraigned but i would not stoop to refute the accusations i dwelt upon the benefits to the city uniform service electricity and large comfortable cars instead of rattletrap conveyances and the development of a large and growing population in the riverside neighborhood the continual extension of lines to suburban districts that enabled hard-worked men to live out of the smoke I called attention to the system of transfers, the distance a passenger might be conveyed, and conveyed quickly, for the sum of five cents. I spoke of our capitalists as men more sinned against than sinning. Their money was always at the service of enterprises, tending to the development of our metropolis when i was not in the meetings however and especially when in my room at night i was continually trying to fight off a sense of loneliness that seemed to threaten to overwhelm me i wanted to be alone and yet i feared to be i was aware in spite of their congratulations on my efforts of a growing dislike for my associates and in the appalling emptiness of the moments when my depression was greatest i was forced to the realization that i had no disinterested friend not one in whom i could confide nancy had failed me i had scarcely seen tom peters that winter and it was out of the question to go to him for the third time in my life and in the greatest crisis of all i was feeling the need of something of some sustaining and impelling power that must be presented humanly possessing sympathy and understanding and love i think i had a glimpse just a pathetic glimpse of what the church might be of human solidarity comfort and support of human tolerance if stripped of the superstition of an ancient science my tortures weren't of the flesh but of the mind. My mind was the sheep which had gone astray. Was there no such thing, could there be no such thing, as a human association that might at the same time be a divine organism, a fold and a refuge for the lost and divided minds? The source of all this trouble was social. Then, toward the end of that last campaign week, madness suddenly came upon me, I know now how near the breaking point I was, but the immediate cause of my flying to pieces— to use a vivid expression, was a speech made by Guptill, one of the Citizen Union candidates for alderman. a young man of a radical type not uncommon in these days, although new in my experience, an educated man in the ultra-radical sense, yet lacking poise and perspective, with a certain brilliance and assurance. He was a journalist, a correspondent of some Eastern newspapers and periodicals in this speech which was reported to me for it did not get into the newspapers i was the particular object of his attack men of my kind and not the judge jasons for whom there was some excuse were the least dispensable tools of the capitalists the greatest menace to civilization we were absolutely lacking in principle we were ready at any time to besmirch our profession by legalizing steals we fouled our nests with dirty fees not all that he said was vituperation, for he knew something of the modern theory of the law that legal radicals had begun to proclaim, and even to teach in some tolerant universities. The next night, in the middle of a prepared speech I was delivering to a large crowd in Kingdom Hall, there had been jeers from a group in a corner at some assertion I made. Guptill's accusations had been festering in my mind. The faces of the people grew blurred as I felt anger boiling rising within me suddenly my control gave way and i launched forth into a denunciation of Greenhold, krebs guptill and even of perry blackwood that must have been without license or bounds i can recall only fragments of my remarks greenholge wanted to be mayor and was willing to put the stigma of slander on his native city in order to gain his ambition. Krebs had made a failure of his profession, of everything save in bringing shame on the place of his adoption, and on the single occasion heretofore when he had been before the public in the school board fiasco, the officials indicted on his supposed evidence had triumphantly been vindicated guptill was gaining money and notoriety out of his spleen perry blackwood was acting out of spite i returned to krebs declaring that he would be the boss of the city if that ticket were elected demanding whether they wished for a boss an agitator itching for power and recognition i was conscious at the moment only of a wild relief and joy in letting myself go feelings heightened by the clapping and cheers with which my characterizations were received the fact that the cheers were mingled with hisses merely served to drive me on at length when i had returned to krebs the hisses were redoubled angering me the more because of the evidence they gave of friends of his in my audiences perhaps i had made some of these friends for him a voice shouted out above the uproar i know about krebs he's a damn sight better man than you and this started a struggle in a corner of the hall i managed somehow when the commotion had subsided to regain my poise and ended up uttering the conviction that the common sense of the community would repudiate the citizens union and all it stood for but that night, as I lay awake listening to the street noises and staring at the glint from a street lamp on the brass knob of my bedstead, I knew that I had failed. I had committed the supreme violation of the self that leads inevitably to its final dissolution. Even the exuberant headlines of the newspapers handed me by the club servant in the morning brought but little relief. On the Saturday morning before the Tuesday of election, there was a conference in the director's room of the Corn National. The city reeked with smoke and acrid stale gas. The electric lights were turned on to dispel the November gloom. It was not a cheerful conference, not a confident one. For the first time in a collective experience, the men gathered there were confronted with a situation which they doubted their ability to control, a situation for which there was no precedent. They had to reckon with a new and unsolvable equation in politics and finance the independent voter there was an element of desperation in the discussion recriminations passed dickinson implied that gorse with all his knowledge of political affairs ought to have foreseen that something like this was sure to happen should have managed better the conventions of both great parties the railroad council retorted that it had been as much dickinson's fault as his Grierson expressed a regret, that I had broken out against the reformers. It had reacted, he said, and this was just enough to sting me to retaliate that things had been done in the campaign, chiefly through his initiative, that were not only unwise, but might land some of us in the penitentiary if Krebs were elected. Well, Grierson exclaimed, whether he's elected or not, I wouldn't give much now for your chances of getting to the Senate. We can't afford to fly in the face of the dear public. A tense silence followed this remark. In the street below, the rumble of the traffic came to us, muffled by the heavy plate-glass windows. I saw talent glance at Gorse and Dickinson, and I knew the matter had been decided between themselves, that they had been merely withholding it from me until after election. I was besmirched for the present at least i think you will do me the justice gentlemen i remember saying slowly with the excessive and rather ridiculous formality of a man who is near the end of his tether that the idea of representing you in the senate was yours not mine you begged me to take the appointment against my wishes and my judgment i had no desire to go to washington then I have less today. I have come to the conclusion that my usefulness to you is at an end. I got to my feet. I beheld Miller Gorse sitting impassive with his encompassing stare, the strongest man of them all. A change of firmness would not move him, but Dickinson had arisen and put his hand on my shoulder. It was the first time I had ever seen him white. Hold on, Hugh, he exclaimed. I guess we're all a little cantankerous today. This confounded campaign has got on our nerves, and we say things we don't mean. You mustn't think we're not grateful for the services you've rendered us. We're all in the same boat, and there isn't a man who's been on our side of this fight, who could take a political office at this time. We've got to face that fact, and I know you have the sense to see it too. I, for one, won't be satisfied until I see you in the Senate. It's where you belong, and you deserve to be there— you understand what the public is, how it blows hot and cold, and in a few years they'll be howling to get us back if these demagogues win. Sure, chimed in Grierson, who was frightened. That's right, Hugh, I didn't mean anything. Nobody appreciates you more than I do, old man. talent too, added something, and Berenger, I've forgotten what. I was tired, too tired to meet their advances halfway i said that i had a speech to get ready for that night and other affairs to attend to and left them grouped together like crestfallen conspirators all save miller gorse whose pervasive gaze seemed to follow me after i had closed the door an elevator took me down to the lobby of the cornbank building i paused for a moment aimlessly regarding the streams of humanity, hurrying in and out, streaking the white marble floor with the wet filth of the streets. Someone spoke my name. It was bitter, Judge Jason's legal tool, and I permitted myself to be dragged out of the eddies into a quiet corner by the cigar stand. Say, I guess we've got Krebs goat all right this time, he told me confidentially, in a voice a little above a whisper. He was busy with the shirtwaist girls last year, you remember, when they were striking? Well, one of them, one of the strike leaders, has taken to Easy Street. She's agreed to send him a letter tonight to come round to her room after his meeting, to say that she's sick and wants to see him. He'll go all right. We'll have some fun. We'll be ready for him. Do you get me? So long. The old man's waiting for me. It may seem odd that this piece of information did not produce an immediately revolting effect. I knew that similar practices had been tried on Krebs, but this was the first time I had heard of a definite plan, and from a man like Bitter. As I made my way out of the building, I had indeed a nauseated feeling. Jason's lawyer was a dirty little man, smelling of stale cigars with a blue-black shaven face in spite of the shocking nature of his confidence he had actually not succeeded in deflecting the current of my thoughts these were still running over the scene in the director's room i had listened to him passively while he had held my buttonhole and he had detained me but an instant when i reached the street i was wondering whether gorse and dickinson and the others grierson especially could possibly have entertained the belief that i would turn traitor i told myself that i had no intention of this how could i turn traitor and what would be the object revenge the nauseated feeling grew more acute reaching my office i shut the door sat down at my desk "'summoned my will, and began to jot down random notes "'for the part of my speech I was to give the newspapers, "'notes that were mere silly fragments of arguments "'I had once thought effective. "'I could no more concentrate on them "'than I could have written a poem. "'Gradually, like the smoke that settled down on our city "'until we lived in darkness at midday, "'the horror of what Bitter had told me "'began to pervade my mind.' until i was in a state of terror had i hugh parrott fallen to this that i could stand by consenting to an act which was worse than assassination was any cause worth it could any cause survive it but my attempts at reasoning might be likened to the strainings of a wayfarer lost on a mountainside, to pick his way in the gathering dusk i had just that desperate feeling of being lost and with it went an acute sense of an imminent danger the ground no longer firm under my feet had become a sliding shale sloping toward an unseen precipice perhaps like the wayfarer my fears were the sharper for the memory of the beauty of the morning on that same mountain when filled with vigour i had gazed on it from the plain below and beheld the sun breaking through the mists the necessity of taking some action to avert what i now realised as an infamy pressed upon me yet in conflict with the pressure of this necessity there persisted that old rebellion that bitterness which had been growing all these years against the man who above all others seemed to me to represent the forces setting at naught my achievements bringing me to this pass i thought of appealing to leonard dickinson who surely if he knew of it would not permit this thing to be done and he was the only man with the possible exception of miller gorse who might be able to restrain Judge jason but i delayed until after the luncheon hour when i called up the bank on the telephone to discover that it was closed i had forgotten that the day was saturday i was prepared to say that i would withdraw from the campaign warn krebs myself if this kind of tactics were not suppressed but i could not get the banker then i began to have doubts of dickinson's power in the matter Judge Jason had never been tractable by any means. He had always maintained a considerable independence of the financial powers, and today not only financial control, but the dominance of Jason himself was at stake. He would fight for it to the last ditch, and make use of any means. No, it was of no use to appeal to him— what then well there was a reaction or an attempt at one krebs had not been born yesterday he had avoided the wiles of the politicians heretofore he wouldn't be fool enough to be taken in now i told myself that if i were not in a state bordering on a nervous breakdown i should laugh at such morbid fears i steadied myself sufficiently to dictate the extract from my speech that was to be published i was to make addresses at two halls alternating with parks the mayoral candidate at four o'clock i went back to my room in the club to try to get some rest Seddon's hall the place of my first meeting was jammed that saturday night i went through my speech automatically as in a dream the habit of long years asserting itself and yet so i was told afterwards my delivery was not mechanical and i actually achieved more emphasis gave a greater impression of conviction than at any time since the night i had lost my control and violently denounced the reformers by some astonishing subconscious process i had regained my manner but the applause came to me as from a distance not only was my mind not there it did not seem to be anywhere i was dazed nor did i feel save once a fleeting surge of contempt for the mob below me with their silly faces upturned to mine there may have been intelligent expressions among them but they failed to catch my eye i remember being stopped by grierson as i was going out of the side entrance he took my hand and squeezed it and there was on his face an odd surprised look that was the best yet hugh he said i went on past him looking back on that evening now it would almost seem as though the volition of another possessed me not my own seemingly I had every intention of going on to the National Theatre, in which Parks had just spoken, and as I descended the narrow stairway and emerged on the side street, I caught sight of my chauffeur awaiting me by the curb. "'I'm not going to that other meeting,' I found myself saying. "'I'm pretty tired.' "'Shall I drive you back to the club, sir?' he inquired. "'No, I'll walk back. Wait a moment.' "'I entered the car,' turned on the light, and scribbled a hasty note to Andrews, the chairman of the meeting at the National, telling him that I was too tired to speak again that night, and to ask one of the younger men there to take my place. Then I got out of the car and gave the note to the chauffeur. "'You're all right, sir,' he asked with a note of anxiety in his voice. He had been with me a long time.' I reassured him. He started the car and I watched it absently as it gathered speed and turned the corner. I began to walk, slowly at first, then more and more rapidly, until I had gained a breathless pace. In ten minutes I was in West Street, standing in front of the Templars Hall, where the meeting of the Citizens' Union was in progress. Now that I had arrived there, doubt and uncertainty assailed me— i had come as it were in spite of myself thrust onward by an impulse i did not understand which did not seem to be mine what was i going to do the proceeding suddenly appeared to me as ridiculous tinged with the weirdness of somnambulism i revolted walked away got as far as the corner and stood beside a lamp-post pretending to be waiting for a car the street lights were reflected in perpendicular wavy yellow ribbons on the wet asphalt and i stood staring with foolish intentness at this phenomenon wondering how a painter would get the effect in oils again i was walking back towards the hall combating the acknowledgment to myself that i had a plan a plan that i did not for a moment believe i would carry out i was shivering i climbed the steps The wide vestibule was empty, except for two men who stopped a low-toned conversation to look at me. I wondered whether they recognized me. That I might be recognized was an alarming possibility which had not occurred to me. "'Who's speaking?' I asked. "'Mr. Krebs,' answered the taller man of the two. The hum of applause came from behind the swinging doors. I pushed them open cautiously— passing suddenly out of the cold into the reeking heated atmosphere of a building packed with human beings the space behind the rear seats was filled with men standing and those nearest glanced around with annoyance at the interruption of my entrance i made my way along the wall finally reaching a side aisle whence i could get sight of the platform and the speaker I heard his words distinctly, but at first lacked the faculty of stringing them together, or rather of extracting their collective sense. The phrases, indeed, were set ringing through my mind. I found myself repeating them, without any reference to their meaning. I had reached the peculiar pitch of excitement that counterfeits abnormal calm, and all sense of strangeness at being there in that meeting had passed away." I began to wonder how I might warn Krebs, and presently decided to send him a note when he should have finished speaking. But I couldn't make up my mind whether to put my name to the note or not. Of course, I needn't have entered the hall at all. I might have sent in my note at the side door. I must have wished to see Krebs, to hear him speak, to observe perhaps the effect on the audience in spite of my inability to take in what he was saying, I was able to regard him objectively—objectively in a restricted sense. I noticed that he had grown even thinner, the flesh had fallen away from under his cheekbones, and there were sharp, deep, almost perpendicular lines on either side of his mouth. He was emaciated—that was the word Once in a while he thrust his hand through his dry, ashy hair, which was of a tone with the paleness of his face. Such was his only gesture. He spoke quietly, leaning with one elbow against the side of his reading stand. The occasional pulsations of applause were almost immediately hushed, as though the people feared to lose even a word that should fall from his dry lips. What was it he was talking about? i tried to concentrate my attention with only partial success he was explaining the new theory of city government that did not attempt to evade but dealt frankly with the human needs of today and sought to meet those needs in a positive way What had happened to me, though I did not realize it, was that I had gradually come under the influence of a tragic spell, not attributable to the words I heard, existing independently of them, pervading the spacious hall, weaving into unity dissentient minds, and then, with what seemed a retarded rather than sudden awareness, I knew that he had stopped speaking.' once more he ran his hand through his hair he was seemingly groping for words that would not come i was pierced by a strange agony the amazing source of which seemed to be a smile on the face of herman Krebs, an ineffable smile illuminating the place like a flash of light in which suffering and tragedy comradeship and loving-kindness all were mingled he stood for a moment with that smile on his face swayed and would have fallen had it not been for the quickness of a man on the platform behind him and into whose arms he sank in an instant people had risen in their seats men were hurrying down the aisles while a peculiar human murmur or wail persisted like an undertone beneath the confusion of noises striking the very note of my own feelings above the heads of those about me i saw krebs being carried off the platform the chairman motioned for silence and inquired if there were a physician in the audience and then all began to talk at once the man who stood beside me clutched my arm i hope he isn't dead say did you see that smile my god i'll never forget it the exclamation poignantly voiced the esteem in which krebs was held as i was thrust along out of the hall by the ebb of the crowd still other expressions of this esteem came to me in fragments expressions of sorrow and dismay of a loyalty i had not imagined mingled with these were occasional remarks of skeptics shaken in human fashion by the suggestion of the inevitable end that never fails to sober and terrify humanity i guess he was a bigger man than we thought there was a lot of sense in what he had to say there sure was the companion of this speaker answered they spoke of him in the past tense i was seized and obsessed by the fear that i should never see him again and at the moment i realized sharply that this was the one thing i wanted to see him i pushed through the people gained the street and fairly ran down the alley that led to the side entrance of the hall where a small group was gathered under the light that hung above the doorway there stood on the step, a little above the others, a young man in a grey flannel shirt, evidently a mechanic. I addressed him. What does the doctor say? Before replying he surveyed me with surprise, and, I think, with instinctive suspicion of my clothes and bearing. What can he say? he retorted. You mean—I began. I mean, Mr. Krebs ought never to have gotten into this campaign— he answered, relenting a trifle, perhaps at the tone of my voice. He know it too, and some of us fellows tried to stop him, but we couldn't do nothing with him, he added dejectedly. What is the trouble? I asked. They tell me it's his heart. He wouldn't talk about it. When I think of what he done for our union, exclaimed a thick-set man, plainly a steel-worker. He's just wore himself out fighting that crooked gang. He stared with sudden aggressiveness at me. Haven't I seen you somewheres? He demanded. A denial was on my lips when the sharp, sinister strokes of a bell were heard coming nearer. It's the ambulance, said the man on the step glancing up the alley beyond the figures of two policemen who had arrived and were holding the people back i saw the hood of the conveyance as it came to a halt and immediately a hospital doctor and two assistants carrying a stretcher hurried towards us and we made way for them to enter after a brief interval, they were heard coming slowly down the steps inside. By the white, cruel light of the arc, I saw Krebs lying, motionless. I laid hold of one of the men who had been on the platform. He did not resent the act. He seemed to anticipate my question. He's conscious. The doctors expect him to rally when he gets to the hospital. End of section 29